Hello, Convention of State podcast listeners. Normally, we reserve this channel for audio versions of our live broadcast, COS Live and the Battle Cry with Mark Meckler. But as a bonus, we like to occasionally release some historic legacy audio for your enjoyment. What are some of the key problems that an Article 5 Convention of States could address? Today's episode features a 2014 Article 5 Symposium Forum discussion featuring Article 5 scholar Rob Nadelson, author and economist Robert Berry, and Convention of States co-founders Mark Meckler and Michael Farrell. I want to give you a little bit of an insight into the rest of the evening, where we're going ahead. Uh, the next item on the agenda is actually a, what we call a roundtable. We're going to try to flesh out some of these amendment ideas. And I'm, you know, as a former law professor, one of my favorite activities is punching holes in what other people say. So I'm going to be working on that. The idea being that we can continue to think about uh, what amendments would be good at the same time we're advancing the general idea of a convention of states. Now, um, before, I, before we actually go to the round table, however, there's one gentleman I need to introduce who has not been introduced because he's going to be talking at the end, but he's also going to be speaking at the round table, so I'd like to tell you who he is. His name is Mark Meckler, and he's sitting right over there. Mark Meckler is another one of these extraordinary individuals. He likes to say that five years ago he was minding his own business in California, North, rural northern California, raising his family. And, um, uh, and then the Tea Party movement happened. And he became concerned about the direction that America was going. And so he, helped, he formed Tea Party Patriots. And within a period of, what, three years, he had developed that into the largest Tea Party movement in the United States with millions of participants. That's the kind of organizational capacity that Mark Meckler has. He is currently the president of the Convention of States movement. Mark, take a little bow. <laughs> okay, okay, now, uh, here on the round table, we're all going to be sitting. And so we're going to be speaking with lapel mics, which hopefully work. So with the participants, please check their lapel mics and make sure they work. Mine does. We're live. One, two, three, Test. four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten kids. <laughs> this is a lawyer who's actually good with numbers. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I was going to move this thing back, but I guess I'm not. <laughs> there are only two lawyer jokes. All the rest are true stories. <laughs> okay. Okay. So the way we have to do it is I'll have to kick it off, and I'm going to kick it off with a with a challenge here to my friend Bob Barry. Oh boy. <laughs> Bob, you talked about toward the end, and you said we've absolutely got to discuss this, but we need to increase the size of Congress. All right. Why is it in the current situation of America, one of the solutions you propose is more politicians? Well, actually, am I, am I wired it? Can everybody hear me okay? Okay, good. Actually, it was <laughs> we had a chance meeting with a former rep in, uh, in our, our legislature here. Is, uh, is uh, former Representative uh, John Sober with us today? Well, we had him at a, at a television show, we had a chance meeting, we were talking about this, and, and I had not written about this particular issue. And he brought up a concern that he had, and it was you that said, you know, that might 
be ameliorated by expanding the number of representatives. Uh, I, I, never, I never said that. <laughs> <laughs> well, so so I'm going to throw I'm going to have to throw one back to you because uh, I've heard this. Uh, Larry Sabato specifically uh, has advocated this, and the idea just so just to kind of bring everybody up to speed is that originally in the original Constitution uh, we had uh, roughly I think it was thirty thousand uh, uh, citizens to uh, a member of the House of Representatives. And that was later increased to, I believe, 60,000, and it is now fixed the number of reps at, a, uh, at 435, and so now the average rep uh, represents something like 700,000 people. And so, the, am I feeding back here? Do I need to? Okay. So the idea is, is, is that something that is a problem? Uh, if it is a problem, obviously increasing is a solution. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, before I get my thoughts, I'd be interested to hear uh, Mike's thoughts. Oh, goody. Um, I've actually litigated this issue. Uh-huh. Um, about three years ago, I filed a lawsuit in the federal uh, court of Oxford, Mississippi, uh, on behalf of citizens from five states, Mississippi, uh, Montana, um, Delaware, I don't remember the other two states. Over the census numbers? O over, the, over the failure of Congress to obey the one man, one vote rule when they apportion the legislators between the states. Wyoming has approximately a half a million voters for one congressman. Montana has approximately one million voters for one congressman. Uh, in Mississippi, there were approximately 900,000 people for one congressman. In Rhode Island, there's approximately 600,000 people for one congressman. Now, when the Supreme Court has looked at when states are dividing up members of Congress in, uh, in, within a state, in the state of New Jersey in particular, they would not allow a disparity of 2,000 people between the largest of 14 districts and the smallest of 14 districts. 69 one-hundredths of one percent was the disparity that was unconstitutional. But when Congress apportions among the states, the disparity that is allowed is 9,100 times greater than that. And the population trends that we're on in this country, within two or three censuses from now, there are going to be 14 states with a single member of Congress. The population concentrations are going to get greater and greater and greater. And what happened in, in the 19, when we finally went to 435 members, the average member of Congress had two aides. Today, the average member of Congress has 24 aides. And so we've grown Congress, we've just grown it the wrong way. Rather than elected representatives listening to the people, congressmen don't go to their, their hearings, they send the aid. Because they're out raising money all the time. Why are they raising money all the time? Because their districts are so big. They have to go raise money to run in front of these huge districts. If you lower the district size of, to just the parliament in Britain, 550 members of Congress, the disparity levels go down 55%. And so it's, we clearly, the Congress hates this because it's dividing up their power. We did surveys in, in connection with this litigation. In every state that we surveyed, we surveyed 10, when the, the state house, the Democrats in the state house were more conservative than the Democrats in the state Senate. The Republicans in the State House were more conservative than the Republicans in the State Senate. And in the U.S. Senate, the Republicans 
in the House from the same state as the Republicans in the Senate. The House members from Texas were more conservative than the senators from Texas. Same party, same state. The Democrats in the House from Massachusetts were more conservative than the Democrats in the Senate from Massachusetts. Net being, the smaller your district, the more conservative the legislator is, whether you're talking about state legislators or politics. You reduce the number of people they're representing, you get more conservative legislators. Do you want to add anything, Mark? Yeah, I do. You know, I think the best thing that Mike said is that Congress hates it, so I'm in favor. <laughs> That's where I start. That's the baseline, right? <laughs> the history of this is really incredible, and I didn't know this until a couple of years ago. We used to reapportion and add congressmen every time we had the census. And in 1913, they passed something called the Reapportionment Act, which fixed the number at 435. And if you go all the way back in history to the convention, it's interesting, you know, Washington, being the statesman he was, didn't say a lot at the convention. He presided over the convention. His presence was enough. But on this issue, he was passionate. And he was concerned about increasing the number of people that one person could represent. When you think about it, they were arguing 30 to 50,000. Can one person represent adequately 30,000? or can they adequately represent 50,000? Today our average is 700,000, which means I think we would all agree that there is no real representation. We are supposed to have a representative form of government. We don't have representation in Washington, D.C. And this is not a one-party issue. I travel all over the country. I don't meet anybody who feels that their representatives actually represent them. So, I'm in favor of expanding Congress greatly. I think today, if we went back to the original formula, it's around 6,220 representatives. I'd like to see that. You know, the argument I hear from some people about that is it would be almost impossible for them to get anything done. Yes. <laughs> okay, okay, I'm going to respond to Bob's request and give you kind of the wonkish idea. This, this idea was actually floated to me originally by a former Montana congressman who was a liberal Democrat. And he was, but he was concerned about the fact that Congress was becoming increasingly unrepresented. It's true, if you go back to the founding era, they were very concerned about uh, the need, especially in the lower house of the legislature, the need to mirror the interests and the feelings of the people as much as possible. They called this, they had a word for this, they called it sympathy. There had to be sympathy between the government, especially the lower house of the legislature and the people, and that means you needed small districts with representatives that everybody knew. Um, you've all heard of the First Amendment. Did you know the First Amendment was originally the Third Amendment? And the reason it was the Third Amendment is there were two amendments in front of it. One was not ratified until 1992, but the other one that was never ratified would have expanded significantly the size of the House of Representatives. And the reason it wasn't passed was because it's expanded naturally by itself. When we established our number of representatives, 435, um, we had a population of this country of 90 million people. It was in 1911 we established 435 representatives, the year my dad was born. 1911, there were only 90 million people in the, in the country. Now that we're pushing on four times as many and the number of representatives has not increased. I'm not, I'm, I don't think that we're necessarily here, maybe we are, I don't think we're necessarily talking about a constitutional amendment to force the increase, but what is interesting about, one of the things that's interesting about Bob Berry's proposal to send them home 
is it makes uh, an increase in Congress much more manageable and uh, arguments against it much, more much less defensible. Now, um, I guess I want to direct my next question to Mike Ferris and his proposal for the Commerce Clause. He quite accurately points out that the word commerce in the founding era did not mean every possible business activity. But the fact is today we have manufacturing concerns uh, that extend across the country. We have uh, environmental issues that certainly air pollution crosses state lines. Uh, we even have agricultural markets that far extend beyond state lines. Uh, even Justice Kennedy, uh, who tends to be pro-federalism, has said that we need to in interpret the Commerce Clause as if there is a national market, because there really is one. So is it really practical to go back to the days of 1787 when there are far fewer impacts among the states in economic matters? Well, I think th th that my banking analogy is the perfect answer. Uh, let's take environmental issues. I, I, I really could see um, regional compacts uh, in New England over environmental issues. But I don't think the Southwest the United States would want to be under the exact same rules as Rhode Island and New York and Connecticut and so on. And so, sure, things cross state lines, but very few things in the environmental world go from Colorado to Maine. Um, and I, I think that there's a room for that. And the states have proven that when you give them the liberty to make their own policies and give them the ability to work together as cooperative states, it can get done. And I see no reason uh, that that wouldn't be done. We, we've proved, proven that we can do it on the whole Uniform Commercial Code, which is not just banking, but business transactions and so on. Uh, the interstate comp compact system can work really quite well to solve those things. And, um, you know, I, I just, you know, I've got snow on my house, in my house back in Washington, D.C. area right now. I think that they really should declare that they've had victory against global warming and stop it, because I'm tired of snow in late March. <laughs> so uh, uh, I think everybody needs to go out and buy, uh, get rid of their Prius and buy a Suburban right away. We need to warm this economy up. <laughs> Mark? You know, I actually spent a lot of time in the area of interstate compacts, and a couple of years ago I was working on the healthcare compact to take authority uh, away from the federal government, give it to the states over the area of healthcare by these interstate agreements. We've done them hundreds of times in the history of this country. Right here, the Colorado River is governed by an interstate compact, so the states have shown themselves more than capable. And in the case where the states can't reach agreement, we have a system of federal litigation where they can fight it out in federal court if they need to, specifically, for example, on environmental issues. So I feel like we already have the constitutional mechanism in the interstate uh, compact world and the litigation mechanism in the federal courts if they can't resolve their differences. Well, you know, the Commerce Clause is one of the best examples of mission creep that I've ever seen. Originally, <laughs> it was essentially uh, to create, in fact, it's really one of the reasons we even have the Constitution we're operating under, because one of the things that drove everybody completely crazy under the Articles is that the fact that there were states who were setting up trade barriers between states. And so here you had tariff zones between states. It was affecting the ability for people to engage in commerce. To keep, back then, it was the, the idea was keeping commerce regular. Am I okay? Can you hear me? Okay. 
So keeping Congress, commerce regular was kind of the objective. They wanted to take out these, these barriers to free trade so that people could do business. But they, that wasn't good enough for them. They had to regulate the commerce itself. Now, and then they extended it later to regulating the companies, so the businesses that engaged in commerce. Now it's pretty much a it's carte blanche to be able to get into any business. So when you see guys coming in uh, under the ADA to come into your place of business and measuring the height of the mirrors in the restroom, uh, this is all uh, traceable back to the Commerce Clause. This needs to be fixed very, very badly. This is probably one of the worst things we've got. And, I, and, and if you were, to, re, if you were to, to reduce the Commerce Clause to what it originally meant, you would have probably, I think I, I tallied it up, something like 40% of the cabinet-level departments would disappear. And, and if those functions were truly necessary, what would happen? they would be relegated to the states. Now, this is a very important point, and this kind of goes with the theme today, because everything that we're talking about, the objectives, all uh, knit together uh, into uh, the, the objective of taking power back from Washington, power that they've usurped, and return it to the people and to the states. I just want to say one thing that picks up on, on what Mark said about interstate compacts, and Mike touched also on interstate compacts. Many people ask the question, well, a convention for proposing amendments has never been held. How do we know how it would operate? How, how the, what the rules would be like? And part of the answer is that we've actually had in this country about 35 different conventions of states. Some of them have been national conventions, such as the Constitutional Convention of 1787 or the Washington Convention of 1861. Many of the conventions have been regional. That is to say, they involve states in a particular region dealing with a particular problem. The rules followed by all of those conventions, including, for example, one state, one vote, they're common to whether they're national or they're regional conventions. The last convention of states I've been able to discover was, in fact, the convention held mostly in Santa Fe, New Mexico, in 1922. It was the convention of states that negotiated the Colorado River Compact. The seven Colorado River states were got into a spitting match over how to divide the um, waters of the, Del of the uh, Colorado River. So the seven states agreed to meet. They uh, asked the federal government to send a representative to. The President of the United States appointed the Secretary of Commerce to be the federal representative to this convention of states. He was elected president of the convention. You may have heard of him. His name was Herbert Hoover. He did a very fine job in, in managing that convention and getting people to come together. But here's the critical thing. If that Colorado River Convention had never happened, the federal government would have stepped in as they were threatening to do and negotiate and, and divided up the rivers of the water, the waters of the river themselves. And the states would have had almost nothing to say about it. And the reason that didn't happen was because of a, because of a visionary Denver lawyer named Delph Carpenter, 
who said that the states meeting together in convention can solve this problem. We don't need federal interve intervention. Wow. So there have been conventions, a lot That's of them. Story. We know the rules, and they work. Balanced budget amendment seems on almost everybody's list. Uh, I guess just yesterday, was it Michigan, became the 19th state, well, actually more than the 19th, but became the latest state to approve an application for a balanced budget amendment. Um, Bob Berry said he th thought that the National Debt Relief Amendment ought to be how, the, how a balanced budget amendment were drafted. I'd like to, I guess I'd like to ask Mark Meckler for his thoughts. Do we need a balanced budget per se, a uh, balanced budget amendment per se, and if we do, then what would it look like? Yeah, I think we need something like that. You said, and I think it's true, I think all of us would agree. In fact, I think everybody of any political affiliation would agree that the federal government and its spending have spiraled out of control. I was actually sitting with somebody in the Colorado legislature today, somebody from the Democratic side, and we were having this discussion about the balanced budget amendment, and he was not necessarily a fan of a BBA, but he said, yeah, the federal government spending is out of control and we have to do something about it. And so I think we have widespread agreement across the American public. I think the numbers are high 70s to low 80s in support of some sort of balanced budget amendment. My fear on the BBA is that the devil is in the details. And I don't know what the right format for a balanced budget amendment is, but I do know that the folks in DC will never, yes, <coughs> never restrict their own spending. It's going to be up to us to figure out the way, and I can't imagine any better way to do it than to trust it to our fellow citizens in a convention of states. We will figure it out. We, we will figure out how to restrain that federal beast. Mike? Um, well, I, I fully agree with that, and you heard my best idea on how to do it. But I, I really believe that a balanced budget amendment standing alone is not going to get the job done. Because until there's spending limits, until there's tax, taxing limits, that the balanced budget part of it, you know, in theory, they could balance it by raising taxes. And the best solution I know of for spending limits is the general welfare clause that I fixed that I proposed earlier. Um, I think, you know, like, like Bob's idea for uh, sunsetting all federal laws, my idea is specifically on tax laws that once our package of amendments is promulgated, that all existing tax laws would be sunset within a stated time, maybe, maybe three years. I don't know exactly, but something along like that. And then, and then after that, to be replaced, any new tax law from, from that point forward would require a supermajority. My preference would be two-thirds of both houses of Congress to impose any new tax. So if they're going to do any taxes at all, two-thirds majority, income tax, all those taxes we've had for hundreds of years, they're all gone. If we, you know, and that's one, something we really should put in this document, is to sunset all the taxes that are on the, on the books. So. We may need to decide whether it's a tax or a penalty, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Bob, do you want to? Uh, yeah, I want to get in on this one, all right. There, there are two thoughts that I have about that. that, that you know, I've read, we, we've come pretty close a couple times in the last, well, since the, since the uh, late 80s, I believe, we almost got a, a balanced budget proposal out of Congress. In one case, it was uh, it came down to one vote. I think in the Senate, maybe in the was it the Senate? Senate. And uh, and instead, we ended up with Graham Rudman. 
and that was kind of the it's kind of a bait and switch situation. But I've read that balanced budget proposal from then, and there's been another one that was more recent than that, and both of them were full of loopholes. And part of it, actually, you mentioned earlier, when it comes to, actually, I think Mike mentioned it, when it comes to basically redefining some of the terms, uh, that gives them a way to get around this. The most disturbing thing that I noticed in, I think, both of these proposals was they had a GDP calculator. Yeah. Now, the gross domestic product is, a, is, probably, is probably the most manipulated statistic in Washington. So anything that's based on that statistic, with, with the possible exception of the CPI, Consumer Price Index, which is actually part of the GDP. And so when you have, um, to, to, I'll, I don't know if this is a word, when you have a, uh, something that's that manipulatable, okay, it is going to get manipulated. The other concern that I have, and this is in Mark Levin's book, is, uh, is limiting spending to a certain percentage of, of GDP. Yeah. In Washington, you know, I grew up in Washington, D.C., and I spent a lot of, you know, the first part of my life there kind of in that culture, and a ceiling in Washington is a floor. <laughs> so, so you're gonna, you're, that's, that's, a, that's a recipe for getting exactly that. The last point I'd like to make is that one of my concerns with a balanced budget only Article 5 convention is that it allows Congress to engage in a game of brinksmanship. And what I mean by that is when this was very close to tipping, you know, back in the late 80s, we, we got to 33 states, we needed 34. We got to 33, and they were able to come at the last minute and run to the front of that parade and propose something. And then, of course, it was kind of like loosing the football, you know, and, and then <laughs> yanked the football out, and we ended up with nothing. If we have a, uh, an application language that is more along the lines of the Convention of States, now we're kind of hitting them on, on too many fronts to where they really can't do that. They're outflanked. I think it's very, very important that we understand that we are going up against a very, very seasoned varsity team here, and we better have our game face on. Um, I have quite a few discussions with the balanced budget people, and I think that they generally have abandoned the idea of trying to give Congress 19% of the gross domestic product or some formula like that. I, th I don't think that's acceptable anymore among most BBA people. Well, let's talk about a different branch of government, uh, the nine lawyers in black robes who make up the U.S. Supreme Court. Mike Ferris, I've heard you talk about a very interesting proposal which would work some changes at the top of the na nation's judicial system. Yeah. Well, as I, as I mentioned to you in my, my opening remarks, I think that the, uh, uh, if they had the states appoint the 50 members of the Supreme Court. They sit in random panels. When they need to get together en banc and, and decide a case, they could do that. I think that's one valid idea that needs to be discussed. Mark Levin's uh, Liberty Amendments proposals gives override uh, power to Congress in certain circumstances and the states in certain circumstances. I think that's a very valid idea for, for discussion as well. I think that proved to be somewhat difficult. My own view is that if we can, if we can make inroads into the federal judiciary in the way it's appointed, um, I've thought through this, the federal district courts, easily the federal district courts could be elected at the state level either by the people or by the legislature. Uh, the Court of Appeals is a little more difficult to, to think through, and if you're, if you're trying to, to balance power out, I guess it wouldn't be a bad thing to leave one level of the federal courts appointed in the current methodology. 
because you have the trial courts by the states, you have the appellate courts by a different methodology, and the Supreme Courts by a different methodology. And maybe that would be good, but again, the Supreme Court has said 30 times, the only check on our power is the court's own sense of self-restraint. I don't want to live in a country wow. where the only check on judicial power is the court's own sense of self-restraint. We can come up with some good things, and if we can't come up with anything better, I, they love international law, I say we hoist them on their own petard and, and make the European Court of Human Rights our model, and we have 50 Supreme Court justices. <laughs> Bob and then Mark. Okay, well I gotta tell you, this, this, uh, this idea of having 50 of them and them all being at the state level like that, I must tell you that I'm, I'm not familiar, I wasn't familiar with that idea, uh, this is exactly, again, this is exactly the kind of thing that would happen in a real amendments convention, right? You hear an idea and you say, you know, this is very interesting, you get, you get the person to expound on it, and I have heard maybe not everything I need to hear on this particular issue, but I'm hearing this kind of the same as most of you for the first time, and I gotta tell you, I think it's gotta be one of the best ideas <laughs> I've ever heard. <laughs> Which, mean, which means that Rob hates it, probably. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the thing that I would throw on top of that, which I think comports with the founder's vision, is term limits for Supreme Court justices. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, at the time of the founding, the average member of the Supreme Court who was appointed was 45 years old. The average life expectancy for a male at the time was 52 years old. There was never any intent for the founders to, to see people serve for decades on the Supreme Court. And, Having people for decades on that court allows them to steer constitutional jurisprudence one direction or the other for a very long period of time. I think that's a significant problem and I think term limits could help resolve that problem. I want to remind you that what's going on here is a brainstorming session. We're talking about some of the possibilities that could be presented to a convention of states. We're not going to, as a practical matter, have a convention of states for a few years yet, hopefully very few years. But, but by that time, these ideas will be on the table and the American people will have the opportunity to consider them. Well, here's one that's a little far out, perhaps. We here in Colorado have a procedure called initiative and we have a procedure called referendum. By an initiative, the voters can themselves initiate laws which they then decide whether to approve by popular vote, thereby bypassing the legislature. By referendum, a measure is first passed by the legislature, but then goes to the people for their final decision. Votes on taxes under Tabor are a good example. There have been some who've argued it's time for at least some kind of limited initiative and referendum process at the federal level. Bob Barry, you're the wild thinker here. What do you think about that? Uh, I actually like the idea. I really do. I mean, the, the mechanics of it would have to be worked out. From what I understand about the process, it's mostly the Western states, correct me if I'm wrong, that have these, these things. You don't see these as much in the East. That's right. So coming from the East, I don't know as much about it. My experience with this whole thing is, is only about three years old. But I like the idea of the people being able to, in sufficient numbers, uh, get past the, some, some of the political barriers that you see with, uh, with elected officials. So I, I think if the path is clear, there's a good, good uh, procedure for it. Uh, sounds to me like there's very, very little downside. 
Mark Meckler? Wow, so can I be the anti-populist here? <laughs> I live in California, the land of initiative and referendum. And uh, you know, it sounds like a good idea. Maybe sometimes it is, but in California, it's been abused by the, the powerful moneyed interests. And so you get things on the ballot, the ballot titling really matters, and they're titled in, in ways they'll say things like, you know, this is the Save the Kittens and Puppies Act, <laughs> right? and everybody votes for it, and suddenly you find yourself with a 10% increase in your sales tax. And so I've seen the process pretty radically abused in California. Actually now, the majority of the spending in California is now mandated in our Constitution due to initiative and referendum. So there are some concerns with the process, and I do have a national concern about it. Mike? Um, I have, I grew up in Washington State and was a fan of initiative referendum and, and still am on, on the state level. Virginia doesn't have that, and I really wish it did. Um, my goal is to so limit the domestic authority of the federal government. This is a bit of an exaggeration, but not much. I'd like to see them in charge of foreign policy, national defense, the patent office, and the Washington monuments. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I don't, I wouldn't want the initiative process to be used to expand the domestic jurisdiction of Washington, D.C. I think we need to do everything we can to move domestic issues away from Washington, D.C. and back to the states. And so uh, the national media would have a heyday with a national initiative and referendum. And so that would make me wary of it. So I think the big thing to do is let's get domestic policy back to the states, keep foreign policy and national defense, and a few housekeeping things in Washington, D.C. We have, a few, we have uh, about five more minutes for, to take one more topic, and it does relate to national defense, which I think everybody on this panel at least believes is a legitimate function of the federal government. Uh, and under the cover of national defense, the United States government uh, spies upon 300 and some odd million Americans as a matter of routine. Um, I'd like to ask the panelists, number one, if they see this as much of a problem as I see it as, and number two, if they do, uh, what, whether it should be dealt with by amendment and what kind of amendment that should be. And I'm going to throw this particular curveball to Mark. You know, um, so this is really near and dear to me because of what's happened to the Tea Party. It's not just spying, but it's the idea that the federal government, and I would argue if you look around closely at the states, you'll find state governments have weaponized state procedure and state law against the citizens. And they've, sometimes they're actually following the law and abusing how they apply it. Sometimes they're just lawless and using the apparatus of the state against citizens. We're living in a really unique time in America right now where you can actually be, in America, a political dissident targeted by your own government. I want you to think about it. That's pretty extraordinary. And this is a new and extraordinary time in America. And so I think this is a significant problem. I think we need to dig in. I think we do. You know, I argue, I would argue that a lot of the things we're seeing from the NSA are unreasonable searches and seizures per se. The idea that they can search all of our cell phones, all of our email en masse. And they keep denying that they're doing it, denying what the scope of it is, denying how they use the data. We should just trust them, right? 
the founders didn't trust them, I don't trust them, and I think we should use our power to create a constitutional amendment to limit them. Mike? Uh, I litigate article, uh, Fourth Amendment cases, search and seizure cases, for homeschooling families because uh, most social workers think that the Fourth Amendment doesn't apply to them. <laughs> and, and I've won a lot of cases uh, in that regard, including in the Ninth Circuit. Um, my uh, moot court team just won the national championship this last year arguing this very question. <laughs> and to see what the courts have said on this topic is scary. And the basic rule that we need to have is that the government should never be able to investigate wrongdoing without a warrant, period. And no such things as general warrants. Warrants need to be sworn out against particular individuals. Because, I mean, the reason we have the Fourth Amendment in the first place is because the Brits had general warrants. They were able to go out and search anybody in everybody's home for evidence of smuggling, which means they weren't paying the taxes that were being illegally levied against them. And so uh, I think we need to, uh, if, if there's a constitutional fix that needs to be made, that is we need to define the term search more particularly so that the warrant requirement goes with this because it's a really simple fix. If there's somebody out there that's really doing bad stuff and we've got evidence that they're doing, breaking the law, committing crimes, planning terrorist activities, we have evidence that amounts to probable cause, then let's go get the evidence and let's tap their phones and everything else that we need to do after we get a warrant. But you cannot go and get everybody's phone call. By the way, this last week or so, the Washington Post reported that our government has admitted that they have the ability to listen to every phone call in every nation of the world, except us. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't believe the accept us part. You know, can, can I ask Mike to elaborate? Yeah. There's something, you and I have discussed this yeah. before. I was really intrigued by the idea. And you talk about how we could apply this to the idea of audits by yeah. the IRS. The IRS is looking for evidence of wrongdoing when they audit someone. And they ought not to be able to randomly audit anyone. They ought to have to have. Uh, Isn't that awesome? Yeah. They need to have probable cause of wrongdoing. If they have probable cause of wrongdoing, if you know they run your return and something doesn't add up and it looks fishy, and they, they could go to a judge and say, look it, here's what we've got here, here's the evidence we have, we think we need to audit this person, fine. They, that is the only time I think they should be able to, to audit anybody. The same thing is true, especially is true, for nonprofit organizations like Tea Party groups and churches and other groups. Because for those groups, they're not looking to collect taxes. The only thing that happens if you fail is they shut you down. They're looking for evidence of wrongdoing, not to collect taxes, but to shut you down. It ought to be absolutely a requirement that they get probable cause and go get a warrant before they do that to anybody. You know, it's been said that the Fourth Amendment is, is uh, perhaps the most important amendment because it gives you basically the right to be left alone. And after hearing all these revelations of the past year, a lot of us are really desiring to be left alone and not have everything that we, so, you know, we live so much of our lives online now that they can, you know, uh, Mike made a reference to, I guess, what the Brits called writs of assistance, right, where they could just, any British officer could write a writ of assistance and do it. Well, boy, they would have loved living in this day and age because now they can do that by remote control. 
and we wouldn't even know that a writ of assistance had been written. They can teleport themselves into our computers, to our banks. They can even go to our banks and get into our records. And the people at the bank are not allowed to even tell you, under threat of, a, a fe I think, a federal felony, uh, that they had even been looking at your banking information. This is very, very scary, scary business. We need to shore up the Fourth Amendment. We need to clarify this. We've got to stop this. This is probably one of the most important things. But I've also got one other little, little bit of hope out here. And that is, if you told me 10 years ago that people were going to be able to go to Best Buy and buy a router and, and hook it up in their house and have it be secure by default, I would have said you were crazy. The average person wouldn't be able to use such a thing. There's no way that that could happen. And it happened. And so I'm going to take, take another, tell you another prediction. With all these revel revelations, people are slowly encrypting up. I encourage everyone in this room, everyone who's watching this on TV, Get yourselves into an encrypted environment to where your email is being encrypted as much as you possibly can. Within, I'd say, about five years, much of what the feds can get into now will have gone dark. You know, I never thought I would live in a country or that America would be a country where that kind of recommendation was even necessary. Yeah, I agree. Sad. Wow. And I am going to pose one other question because I've also never thought I would see an America in which there was as an active attack on freedom of religion as there is now. And so I'm going to pose this last question to the panel, starting with Mike Ferris, who has particular expertise in this area, and ask, do we need, at this point, additional constitutional protections, safeguards for religion? Or do you think it's likely that, at least in this area, the Supreme Court will do the right thing? Mike? Well, the Supreme Court threw the free exercise of religion into the constitutional trash can in a case called Smith versus Employment Division, State of Oregon. And um, I uh, was the chairman of the group of lawyers that wrote the Religious Freedom Restoration Act that was argued before the Supreme Court this week in the Hobby Lobby case. Uh, I personally named the act. I didn't write every word of it, but I did name it, and I was the chairman of the group of people, lawyers that did write it. Hmm. Now, our re my, my real goal was to get this extraordinary coalition of groups that were, that were all sides of the political spectrum. On the steering committee, was, in addition to me and the National Association of Evangelicals, who are you know, the conservatives in the group, the ACLU was there, People for the American Way was there, the American Jewish Congress was there, and um, so on. Uh, the reason that we all joined together, frankly, the reason the ACLU came in is the Jewish organizations understood religious freedom correctly, had good views on it, and they called in all their political capital with groups like the ACLU and told them, they will come and help us on this. And they did. Now, I think we, the Supreme Court has misinterpreted the free exercise clause so that no longer do you have, can you raise a free exercise claim in cases like the photographer in um, New Mexico who was forced by state law to go and photograph a same-sex wedding ceremony 
or the, the florist shop in Richland, Washington, that's required to make wedding flowers for a same-sex wedding ceremony. Or the doctor in California who was forced to do artificial insemination, insemination on a lesbian couple. We are losing our religious freedom hand and foot because the Supreme Court has said that you cannot get a religious exemption from a neutral law of general applicability. If you just work that out, my church, the Catholic Church, lots of churches take the position that only men should be pastors. The laws of this country say no sex discrimination in employment. There is no free exercise of religion protection for the Roman Catholic Church or my church, Blue Ridge Bible Church, that wants to say we want to hire the pastors we want to hire rather than the pastors you want us to hire. That's the net effect of the Employment Division versus Smith case. And the only fix of that is to re-up the free exercise clause to mean what it really meant in the first place. Um, it, it's, it's the only um, uh, version, portion of the First Amendment where you cannot raise an as-applied challenge, which means freedom of speech, freedom of the press. You can have certain laws for corporations, but you can't make those same laws apply to the corporation known as the Washington Post, because they have freedom of press. And so that's an as-applied challenge. And we need to be able to have as-applied challenges in the free exercise of religion. And the Supreme Court has just totally taken it away from us. And we could fix that with the constitutional amendment. Uh, Bob and then Mark, very quickly, because we're I'm, I'm offended uh, that, that we have to debate this thing yeah. on the basis of uh, freedom of religion. I agree. I understand the arguments that it's a freedom of religion issue. No question about it. I support that defense, but the reason I'm so offended by this whole thing is I see it just as a simple freedom case. When somebody in Washington, D.C. can tell you how you're going to deal with your employees or what kind of business you have to take or not take, I, I think just on that basis alone, it should be anathema to any person who loves freedom. I'm offended because this goes to the root of the American experience, right? I mean, our forefathers came to this country largely to escape religious persecution and to be able to freely exercise their faith. That's why so many of them came here. And the idea that now, as a nation, we're limiting the exercise of that faith is unbelievable to me. You know, Mike recently litigated a, a case and has been litigating a case for a German homeschool family, the Romiki case. And it's incredible to me, it's, it's almost impossible to imagine the way that that case turned out. So here's a family that comes to the United States because we are the land of religious freedom. And they are a Christian homeschool family. They want to educate their children at home according to their Christian values. They're not allowed to do so in Germany. They're persecuted for doing so. There are criminal penalties for doing so. Their children can be taken away from them for doing so. I mean, to me, clear obvious religious persecution. So they come here to the beacon of religious freedom in the world, to the country that has always been the beacon of religious freedom, and we have an administration that says they're not entitled to asylum for religious persecution. And that case gets litigated through the court system, and ultimately, recently, uh, the Supreme Court denies to certify that case, and they are denied asylum. They're denied the right to freely practice their beliefs here in America under the protection of our laws, 
You know, now an amazing thing happened at the end of that. There was an incredible outpouring of prayer and support across this country for this German homeschool family. And in, in what can only be described, I believe, as a miracle, the Department of Homeland Security granted them a semi-permanent exception to their status. So they're allowed to stay here and practice freely and educate their children as they believe in. That is incredible for the Romiki family. I mean, it's really amazing that that happened, right? You know, but, but before, you, before you get too excited about that, I want you to think about what that actually means. Because what it means is really distressing. What it means is they are here at the favor of the king. They have been granted an exemption which theoretically could be withdrawn. I don't believe it will be, but theoretically, they're here in a favor, an exception. And Washington, D.C. now works on favors and exceptions. And you go and you beg the king for favor, and hopefully you get what you want. That is not the principle upon which the United States of America operates. Check out more content at conventionofstates.com slash pod. Thank you for listening.